thank you for tuning in to a new episode of Know Your Carrots. Each week, we bring you a new guest to discuss engineering and culture. We go deep on how they started at Instacart, what they do day to day, and how they have fun. You can find us online at tech.instacart.com, on Twitter, and on Facebook. Subscribe to the show on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. If you like the show, please write us a review on iTunes or your favorite podcast app. It goes a long way to help other people discover our podcast, so thanks. Okay, so uh, going back really far, so I was, I'm actually Canadian, so I was born in Toronto, and then I moved abroad to Bangladesh. I lived there for five years, and then oh, I yeah, moved... Oh, yeah, know this. Yeah, yeah, and then, and then I lived in Thailand for two years, and then I, I uh, my family moved to uh, New York. I went to school in New York lived in D.C. for a while, then moved to Boulder, then moved to San Francisco. So I've been all over the place. Uh, my parents both did um, uh, demography and health research, um, and they were studying wa- waterborne illnesses. So my father did a lot of research with something called the ICDDRB, um, which is why So everybody always asks wh- whether or not my, my dad was a uh, part of the military. Um, but it, it, he was actually just doing research. Um, now he's a professor at Columbia. Yeah. Um, so he was doing a lot of statistical research, uh, and and that brought us all over the place. Um, when I was in D.C., I, I worked at a bunch of D.C. tech startups. Um, one of them was uh, a small healthcare startup called Revolution Health, and then I met Jack Dempsey there. Oh, okay. So Jack Dempsey, Min, a bunch of other guys that, that are now in San Francisco, I worked with at Revolution Health, and a lot of us kind of moved into Living Social, and Living Social kind of kept us all together, and then uh, eventually uh, that's what brought me here. So so Jack, Jack Dempsey uh, was kind of instrumental in getting recruiting uh, on, on me <laughs> when, okay. when I was still at Living Social. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, yeah. So then I just kind of like slowly moved away, uh, away from the East coast. And, um, now I'm in, now I'm in Berkeley and I really love it. I love the weather out here. It's amazing. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, this, this is so cool. I didn't know that you like travel so like so much, uh, uh, like, uh, b- b- before moving here. Yeah. So, um, you, you, you mentioned that, like, Jack kind of brought you here to Instacart. So, yeah. like, what, what do you mostly do here right now? Yeah, so uh, I'm on the search infrastructure team, and um, most, of our, most of our roles and responsibilities on that team are, are directly related with scaling, uh, scaling our infrastructure, keeping the lights on, making sure things aren't on fire. Uh, and then the other, the other thing is uh, data ingestion. So we handle all of the data ingestion from our retailer partners into our front-end site, and Search kind of powers all of that. So um, at Instacart, all of our, all of our front-end um, and, and basically any product that shows up on the front-end is directly powered by Search. Um, and I've kind of been working in this space for a while, but it's, it's changed. Um, when I first started here, the team was tiny. There's only a handful of people. We all fit in one room. And um, uh, I worked on the catalog team. And as the catalog team grew, uh, the roles got a little bit more specific. And it's now the catalog team itself is split into uh, search infrastructure, customer search, catalog products, catalog items, catalog ops. So 
every single time we've added about 10 people to the team, they've split. So they become smaller and smaller teams. And um, we've got a little is, but bit the more scope as well, right? Yeah, and the scope is kind of narrowly focused. Like I, I've been all over the place. I worked on the iOS team for a while and built customer-facing uh, features. And it just came, we we just came to the conclusion that um, in our current setup, we can't have a search team alone. We have to have a uh, we have to have a support mechanism to allow other teams to to kind of manage their own search infrastructure. So a lot of what we're doing now is building tooling around it and making sure that making sure that each team can handle their own indexing flow. They can they can scale their system with they with what they need. And the other thing that we're doing is we're we're making sure that. Um, costs and accounting are kind of like divided by team, so we know exactly how much resource each team is consuming in our search in our search platform, and how they contribute into the. Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. So, so um, just to give you a little background mm -hmm. on, on how search works, we have uh, several different clusters um, in production, and we keep them isolated by business uh, by bus business use. So, for example. Shoppers have their own isolated cluster. You know that, you know, yeah. the shopper team. Um, and we also have a background a background cluster that's only used for data reporting and background services, things that are asynchronous. And then we have two production clusters for the customer app that are divided into slow queries and fast queries. Mm -hmm. So what we what we discovered is that anytime you're running queries in production, you want to keep the slow running queries separated and isolated from the fast running queries that are critical for checkout. So now all of that is separated. Uh, it's added a lot of uh, stability to our system. Um, yeah, so, so and, and, and the other thing is the, the, the big thing that we're doing right now is we're building reporting tools around that and tracking everything so that we know where the issues are. Um, Elasticsearch, I don't know how much experience you've had with Elasticsearch, but in the past, we've had issues with visibility into what queries are actually executing and mm -hmm. what's causing issues. Uh, so now we have a little bit more tooling around all that. Yeah. So other than like, the tooling and uh, like kind of this optimization that I would, like divide the slow queries versus fast queries, mm -hmm. what kind of problems like most yeah. of you work day to day? Yeah, yeah. So, um, so the I think the most important thing to realize about Elasticsearch and so Elasticsearch is our is our uh, search platform, um, and it has finite capacity. So anytime you have a uh, anytime you have a node or a cluster, uh, the number of CPUs you have directly relates to how many search threads you have available mm -hmm. for search. Uh, what that means is that if you have slow running queries, you can get request queuing in Elasticsearch, uh -huh. and as a result, uh, you'll have other queries that are usually pretty fast that all of a sudden start timing out, and then you'll have uh, you'll have queries just backing up, and then you'll have a, a flood of of 500s in your uh, in your load balancer, and then all of a sudden everybody's like, "What the hell is happening in search?" All right, so without knowing what the query, the actual underlying query is that's mm -hmm. slow, that's tying up threads, it's very difficult in turn to figure out how to, to tease those queries out 
from the fast run inquiries. Okay. So a lot of times what, what, what we were seeing in production is our query would get into a state where like CPU would spike yeah. and we would have a ton of timeouts with, with searches that presumably should be fast, like fetch by IDs, MGETs, yeah. things that are like in, lightning fast normally. And one of the things that was causing issues, I, I'll give you an example, um, we had a we had a situation where our, our multi-search uh, was unbounded. So you could have situations where people were, recreate, or were creating shopping lists, where it's executing hundreds of searches simultaneously based on a shopping list. And each query, as it executes, even if, even if it's in a multi-search, in a bulk mm -hmm. payload, what, what is multi-search? Yeah. Uh, multi, okay, so multi-search is uh, how you parallelize search in Elastic. Okay. So, so, so if you have a, there's multiple endpoints um, in Elasticsearch as a REST API. Um, there's a multi-search endpoint that allows you to pass a an array of searches, and then it executes all the searches at once, compiles the list, and then returns them as an array to the client. Okay. Now, the thing is is that even though it's faster because you're parallelizing everything, it's still tying up those threads. It's still using resources. Yeah. So what can happen is if you execute 100 really slow, horrible queries all at once, you can tie up an entire cluster. And that's not good. Okay. You don't want to do that, yeah. right? And we, it took us hours, you know, sometimes days to track down some of these queries because on aggregate, they're actually not executing that often. They would kind of execute randomly. Maybe it's an uncached page that's all of a sudden executing these, these mm -hmm. multi-searches, and it would tie up the cluster, CPU would spike, rush to 500s, and we'd be like, I have no idea what the hell is happening. Right. And right now with new tools, do you have like better visibility to yeah. those yeah. things? Yeah, so, so uh, we, we had a couple of requirements for all of our, uh, all of our tooling. Um, one of the things that we realize is that most engineers don't know Elasticsearch uh, JSON uh, formatting for queries. Yeah, it's like <laughs> yeah, yeah. Like it's it's hard to it's hard to go into Kibana and create a dashboard for logging when you don't know the underlying technology of Elastic. How many people know what timeline is? Yeah. I don't know. I, I, it's a question mark, right? But I think the search team knows. But outside of search. No one, no one, no one yeah. does, right? So having SQL as a as an underlying technology for tooling and and understanding what's going on in the cluster was kind of a, a requirement. Um, and the other thing is that we needed full coverage everywhere search is executing. Every every single time someone executes a search, it has to go through the same funnel, the same pipeline. So we have 100% coverage in all this. Mm -hmm. All right, so. 100% coverage, uh, SQL interface for, for understanding, dashboards, time series, and then the other thing that we needed was accountability. Mm -hmm. So a way of tying back resource use to a specific team. So let's let's talk about each one. So yeah. the, the, first, the first thing is with SQL, um, what we're doing now is we have a we have a data processing pipeline that we're using Kinesis for. Um, if you're not familiar with Kinesis, it's very similar to uh, Kafka, Kafka yeah. or you know any of these PubSub type type things. Um, so what we do is we have a plugin called Eventer, and Eventer 
anonymizes all the queries, anything that's coming in through Elasticsearch, and then throws it into a processing stream. And the process, processing stream ETLs into any number of different sources. Okay. Uh, the one that we use for real-time analytics is called Druid. Um, it's, a, it's a event store. It's incredibly fast for processing small bite-sized data, data. And the nice thing is that they have a SQL interface for it. So with Eventer, Kinesis, and, um, and Druid, yeah. we have a tool called Blazor that does, the, does all of the um, visualization, query interface. Anyone can come in there and see what queries are failing. Um, so, so now what we have is a robust platform where every single search, regardless of how trivial, is tracked. And along with all of this, we, we track every single owner. So whenever you make a request on Elast in, in Instacart, mm -hmm. we have the code owner. Which should be in the team. Right? Which, which team owns the mm -hmm. search stored in a thread along with the execution location of the search. So what happens is anytime we have a, a slow query, we can see, oh, this, this belongs to the growth team or this belongs to the consumer team, this, okay. this belongs to the shopper team, et cetera, et cetera. And then the other thing that we can do is we can calculate percentiles on how slow queries are, whether or not they're succeeding or failing. When we first implemented this, we found out that we had several queries that were seldom executing and literally had, some of the queries actually had 0% success rates. So we were, we were executing searches that never that succeeded. Never, never succeeded. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and the, the first response for most, most engineers was like, why the hell doesn't search work? Like, why do we get all these timeouts? It's bad, whatever. Well, turns out that we have underlying searches that are just Bogus data. Bogus data. It, it's searching on things that can never, never complete. Uh, we have hundreds of millions of items that we search, and people are doing aggregations on prices and warehouses and all these other things that can never execute correctly. Uh, so and shouldn't even be probably asked from Elastic. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, to so warehouse or something. Yeah. So 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 a lot of the queries. Uh, that we're hitting Elasticsearch for aggregations for doing data processing. We switched over to Redshift queries, but now they're, they're now they're Snowflake, so we're changing technologies a little bit. But uh, it just gave us a lot of insight into like performance tuning and figuring out what, yeah. <laughs> where where the actual issues were. And the other thing that we could do is because of every single query. Um, we track the UUID of the request that it comes from. Uh -huh. we, can, we can join with all of the other Elasticsearch queries that are happening within the scope of that request. And, and we have a tracing, right? Yeah, we can trace. We, have, uh, we use a log provider called LogDNA. We have links to a particular search and where it executed in the logs. So we can actually lit link within our logs to see what's happening around it. Um, which is super useful for the for the case where you have a burst of timeouts. Mm -hmm. um, so that that's one use case. Another one that another failure case that always happened mm -hmm. is we would have we would have people executing n plus one queries. So you would return a list of product IDs and then you would execute a search 
on every single product ID, right? That yeah. doesn't work. That just totally doesn't work. It doesn't work. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And we were seeing some some requests hitting, you know, 150 times, executing 150 searches, 200 searches, and people are like, "Why the hell doesn't this work?" Well, yeah, you're executing 200 searches in one request. Of course, it doesn't work. And, and that's you <laughs> normally uh, move into the multi-queries, right? Yeah, yeah. So, so the thing is, is that if you if you move to a multi-search, you're still incurring the cost. You're still incurring the CPU load yeah. of executing each of these searches individually. So, the better way to do it is instead of executing 100 searches you execute a single search that grabs all the items by ID, or you figure out a different way of executing the search altogether, and you don't mm -hmm. use search, you use a relational DB or something like that. Right, and you wasn't able to do it before, you yeah. actually get yeah. the tools and to find the issues. Exactly, exactly. So so one one part of the, one part of, um, I, we, so we call this reporting thing ES Hero, that, yeah. that's, the, that's the, the internal name for it. Uh, one thing that it does, is it anonymizes the query. So every single query gets the attributes stripped out of it, it replaces it with question marks or the, the data type mm -hmm. that, that's passed into the, the, uh, into the query, and we fingerprint it, so it creates a SHA of the query. And the cool thing is that because that query is executed in a similar way across multiple uh, requests, yeah. you can join on those. So then you can say, how much does this query cost versus this query? Or where where are the where are the slowest queries? Um, where are the queries that are failing um, the most? Or you know, yeah. et cetera, et cetera. I mean, the 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 the, the potential for this it's it's basically limitless for actually diving into what's happening mm -hmm. um, in production and. Just to give you a, a, a sense of how much it's helped us, we went from, so two months ago, we were at 3,000 searches a second, something like that. Mm -hmm. uh, and if you, and that's just on a single cluster. So we okay. were probably executing five, 6,000 queries a second. Uh, across both of them. Across all the clusters. Um, now we're down to around 250 a second. So we've we've decreased the number of searches just through visibility of blogging and all these other things. So if there's one takeaway from all this is that you should never have a data store that doesn't have blogging around it or, or doesn't have full visibility. Into, yeah, visibility into what's what's occurring on it. Um, Postgres we use PG Hero. Now Elasticsearch we have ES Hero. Um, we're, we're we're working towards a better world where we know all of these things. Yeah. That's great. Uh, yeah, so, um, and I wanted to ask you to brag about the result, but you already did it for me. Yeah, that's just one thing. I, yeah. I, I, I think once we get into a more stable world, uh, uh, what, what we're starting to do, and we didn't do a good job of this before, is, is kind of working with each team to kind of fix the problems. So I don't, even though we're building these self-service tools for the teams, mm -hmm. it's unfair to say, hey, this query is broken, fix it, without giving some tooling around or guidance around how to fix it and making it and make, make them better. Um, so we've been doing a lot of pairing with other teams to kind of transmit this information and, and make sure everything is more stable. And now, Anytime a bad query reaches production, we know almost instantaneously that it's a, that it's an issue because it shows up in our 
uh, in our dashboards that something's wrong. This is really cool. Yeah. So you like you're really the tool guy, right? So like, can you uh, share with like other projects or tools like you're really excited lately, like other than the ones you built yourself? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So so uh, one of the things that I, I'm most excited about is uh, our switch over to Snowflake. Um, so I don't know how much experience you have with data warehousing and some of the the, the big data. App big data warehousing. Yeah, well, we, we played with Redshift, which was obviously really slow. Yeah. And uh, as far as I understand, understand like Snowflake, Snowflake works much faster for us in most mm -hmm. of their use cases. Yeah, yeah. So so one of the things that's super nice about it is that the, uh, the, the writes and the reads are completely separated from one another. And the other thing that means is that uh, they have this concept of data warehouses, and data warehouses are read capacity, uh, read capacity nodes that you can provision per team. So what would happen before is we'd have Redshift, it would have data or some subset of our data, and some team would be, you know, our CPG team is is running a query that takes three hours and it would just hammer Redshift, and then everybody would would have issues with Redshift, and uh, this this uh, multi-tenant design with Redshift didn't work. Mm -hmm. uh, along with scaling, it became an issue, right? You, you have to you have to block rights to it, you have to scale it, you have to repropagate all the data to it. And it was like a a big whoop do do. Mm -hmm. uh, anytime you any anytime Redshift had issues, right? So Snowflake, you just provision warehouses, and okay. any team has a its own warehouse. Yeah, a, a, its own data warehouse. Uh, you can even have provisioned data warehouses that are a subset of your data, so you can share data across companies, across teams, across whatever. Um, one thing that I've seen that's pretty cool is if you run out, if, if you start request queuing in Snowflake, yeah. you're going to have it automatically provision more nodes. Oh, so to, 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 to handle scaling. And one of, the, one of the benefits there is that anytime you add a node, uh, it adds that much read throughput. So typically, I think this, depending on the type of search, obviously, but the, the queries scale linearly, and they speed up linearly with the number of nodes that you provision. Nice. So a lot of the teams that, uh, I, I was talking with one of our data scientists yesterday, and one of the queries that they use to rank um, rank ads on Instacart used to take two to three hours to calculate across all of our warehouses, and now they do it in four minutes. With That's Snowflake. impressive. That's yeah. like four hours, 360, yeah, like I 90 mean, times faster. Yeah, yeah, it's, degree, yeah. it's crazy. So, so, and the other thing that we're doing is anything that goes into Elasticsearch for our catalog is also ETL'd into Snowflake. So any data that is live in Elasticsearch, you can query through SQL in our data warehousing application. Uh, so you get the nice. parity for the yeah yeah. So so now you don't need to know you don't need to know how to write Elasticsearch queries to then search. I, and I know I know that one thing I wanted to try and I haven't I haven't actually looked into this too much is. The SQL interface. There's a SQL adapter for Elasticsearch, and I want to try using that to see how how well that works. Um, mm -hmm. But yeah, I just haven't gotten around to it yet. That's interesting. Yeah. Um, so, um, if we kind of go back, like to to like a little bit of like tooling, like what mm -hmm. what are you doing, like what you what are you using, like every day. Like what's your like go-to editor? What's your shell? What's your yeah. like things that like you 
pretty much using every day and can't uh, uh, do your job without. Yeah. So uh, I'm a I'm a ZSH guy. Um, I uh, one one thing that I am a firm believer in is anytime you do something three times, make it automated uh, or automated in some way. So one, actually I showed this to you the yeah. other day, uh, a common thing that I would do is I, I never deploy code directly or push directly to master and Git. Mm -hmm. um, so, and I, I, I have this constant, constant workflow where I would push code, then open up the web browser, type in GitHub and then the repo, and then I would submit a pull request off of the tree, find the branch and all these other things. And I realized that like I was just doing the same thing over and over and over and over again. So I have a, a little bash script now that detects what branch I'm on locally. It pushes it up, it creates the pull request for you. Um, it tracks the pull request, it does everything for you so you don't have to go through that flow. Uh, I know that sounds trivial, but the little things like that start adding up. Mm -hmm. like having, having every single thing that you do repetitively, day, day after day after day. Uh, automated is like refreshing because you don't have to think about it. Yeah. It's, it's funny because I, I go to other people's computer and I'll, I'll type in all of, all of these shortcuts and I'm like, ah, crap. Yeah. <laughs> I'm not on my laptop. Yeah. <laughs> but anyway, yeah. Yeah, that, that's one that I share all the time. Um, mm -hmm. I also use, um, uh, I use a, uh, I think it's called AutoJump that jumps directories based on usage. Mm -hmm. So if you're working on a particular app, you can just hit jump to that directory and it like remembers what the rank is and you can like oscillate between directories. Mm -hmm. That's a super useful tool. Um, uh, another really small thing that I just started doing is, and it, with, with iOS, I started, uh, playing around with different types of keyboards. Mm -hmm. So I'm using the, the, the swipe text keyboard now, and that allows me to type faster on, on, on Oh, interesting. Yeah, I, I, I used to, I tried it like many years ago, yeah. and it didn't quite work. Maybe it's like much better right now. I, I get really used to it on my Android phone, and then mm -hmm. when I switched back to, to iOS, I kind of missed it. And I was like, oh man, it would be really nice if they supported external keyboards. And now that they do, I'm all about it. So that's Perfect. been really, yeah. really nice. Um, I'm trying to think of other other little things. Um, or maybe um, not little, right? So, like, who, which editor do you use? You use Atom so, right now, right? No, no, no. So, I, I use, um, uh, so Vim is is a, is a something that I use with, like, NerdTree and a bunch of other things. Mm -hmm. um, but it really depends on the team. Like, mm -hmm. some teams prefer IDs like Sublime or Atom or whatever. Uh, I ended up not liking Adam mm -hmm. because I don't know it ju it just didn't seem as intuitive to me as Sublime and Vim Vim is is nice when you get used to it uh, but it, there's a there's a definite learning curve to Vim um, I've I, I just remember that I've had a couple coworkers in the past that are just Vim wizards where where they're doing things and and they have all these crazy macros that I just like way over my head. <laughs> like, Wait a second, what did you just do? You edited yeah. it across how many files? Um, yeah, yeah. So, so uh, uh, Visual Studio, the new. Uh, the it was new just the code, yeah. yeah. Yeah, Visual Studio Code is 
really nice. I think that one is an excellent ID uh, if you're not into the um, Vim yeah. workflow. Uh, I mean, the nice thing about Vim is that it works uh, everywhere. It works everywhere, yeah. right? So you can you can um, you can SSH into a box and just have a text editor, which is super nice. Uh, yeah. Cool. Um, uh, so, but yeah, so we talked about tools. So, like, in your like everyday job, right? How mm -hmm. you, how you work on your like task? How mm -hmm. you like, do you like do like the to do list? Do you have like GTD or do like track it in emails? Like so, like how you keep track of what you need to be done and like mm -hmm. how you kind of make sure that. Uh, yeah. So, so um. The search infrastructure team is a little different than some of the other teams at Instacart. Uh, we don't have a product manager. Uh, we have a tech lead, uh, a TLM, that handles um, resourcing and some of the long-term goals of, of, the, of the team. But mm -hmm. on a day-to-day -day basis, it's up to myself and, and uh, John, the other mm -hmm. John, yeah. on, on the search infrastructure team to kind of determine what what we need to work on. Uh, the reason for this is that it's it's hard if you're not an engineer on the infrastructure to know what's falling over in the infrastructure. And most of the stuff that we build specifically relates to things that only we would know about. Um, so, so what that means is that typically we only have uh, two Asana dashboards. We mm -hmm. have a backlog of all of, the, all of the things that we know we have to do. And then we have the that's a prioritized backlog that's that's in rank order of importance. Mm -hmm. um, and then we have a weekly sprint of all the stuff that we have to do. Now, intermixed in the weekly sprint are things like um, uh, incident recovery, incident, uh, incident response. Uh, we also spend a fair bit of time doing code cleanup, mm -hmm. um, and that's just to make the system more robust and, you know, uh, cleaner, I guess, mm -hmm. easier to maintain. So, yeah, so so every week we'll have five to ten tasks that we're absolutely doing. If if it's a bigger task, it'll only be one. You know, like we'll we'll prioritize that one task, concentrate on it, get it rolled out. Mm -hmm. um, some tasks take several weeks just because of the nature of testing it. And like mm -hmm. if we're if we're switching major versions of Elasticsearch, it could. You know, we, we need to test all these things for about a month before yeah. we go live, right? So, uh, yeah, right now there's a lot of that going on. We have a we have a process of sending direct production traffic to a background cluster that we can test new versions of Elasticsearch, make sure that everything works. Mm -hmm. um, so we're we're in the process of doing all that now. Yeah. Um. Yeah, that's an uh, interesting approach. So, um. Um. So. Do do you think that that um, so just tracking the everyday stuff like mm -hmm. it's it's one thing, but like kind of like looking at like your maybe personal yep. kind of like long term goals, yeah. like how you how are you looking at that? Like, yeah, that, that's a great question. Um, so I, I I'll answer it from the from the standpoint of the the search team first and how mm -hmm. we do long term goal planning. So at any given time at Instacart, I find that we have around two months to three months of runway before the current architecture just completely falls over and doesn't work anymore. Okay. And an example of that is, so 
we've been signing a ton of retailers. Our growth is asymptotic right now. Like yeah. The number of items coming in through indexing is uh, yeah, it's a hundred times what it was just a few months ago, right? Yeah. So, right there, that if you rewind a few months ago, we saw that start to happen, and along with all these little bitty tests that, that like keep the lights on or whatever, mm -hmm. we have these huge architectural shifts in our platform. So, we used to have this old indexing flow that read directly from the DB. It was highly coupled to our catalog, mm -hmm. uh, to our catalog DB, and, you know, everything was falling over because because of load. Uh, and now we're kind of, like, decoupling things with Kinesis, and uh, uh, we started using Airflow and all these other tools to kind of help help with scaling problems. So, so what we'll do is we'll look at some of these long-term priorities of these need to change, otherwise we're not going to be able to keep the lights on anymore. Yeah. Like if you if you look at it three months from now, what's going to keep you up at 3 a.m. dealing with pager duty alerts? Like, you yeah. don't want to be in that situation. So, like, right now it's all about hard drive space. We're, we're at, you know, 50% capacity, and these are, like, huge clusters that we're, we're running out of hard drive space on. Yeah. So what do we do there? Well, we're, we're probably going to have to re-architect our data model. We're probably going to have to rethink how the entire front-end search works. But these are all things that are very long-term goals, and there's a ton of things that have to happen before that. So like, it, it's all stepwise. Like, we, we rolled out Kinesis, Eventor, all this ETL stuff, and that allowed us to rapidly change the way that we index. Rapidly changing the way that we index allows us to... Uh, change, fundamentally change our data model. Fundamentally changing the data model allows more self-service across teams and specialized, which allows us to delete data and, and use less storage space, which allows us to have this long-term goal of not uh, falling over, right? And not mm -hmm. being up at 3 a.m. <laughs> yeah, no one wants to be up Nobody at 3 wants <laughs> Nobody wants to be up at 3 a.m. dealing with pager duty. So, yeah, so I, I think I think that's that's the big thing. It's It's... For us, it's a lot of resource gathering, figuring out where the issues are, and then figuring out what how to break down the tests into smaller pieces that get us to that long-term goal. And once a quarter, we'll do these, we'll do these like long uh, roadmap uh, reviews that just kind of outline the big concerns that we have. Mm -hmm. um, so before before uh, we had. Eventer and uh, ES Hero running in production. Our big goal was search stability and reducing the number of timeouts and all these other things, and that's led to all these other other uh, opportunities mm -hmm. of growth, right? So, so right now you have to like deal with scale once you kind of figure it that uh, mm -hmm. it's stable again, and then the probably it will be a new cycle after that. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so, so I mean. Uh, yeah, the, the other thing is now that we have this ETL pipeline for all the data and because the, the, the rights to our data stores are disaggregated from the ingestion process, we can, we can now try out different data stores. We can try out uh, uh, specialized data stores for very specific use cases. So maybe now it's Elasticsearch. Maybe we can roll out, uh, roll out Cassandra or maybe we can try... Um, uh, any number of these different um, data stores that that uh, 
that we haven't tried yet. And yeah. it, it's, it's much more flexible now than it was a few months ago. And that, I think, I think that's, that's our primary goal right now is like when you get to our scale and we're, we're getting to the point where a generic data store doesn't work particularly well, you need to start uh, specializing. So, so we're hitting the point when we're like one of the hugest users of Elasticsearch, in other words, right? Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, and just just to be clear here, there, there's a lot of different types of users of Elasticsearch. There's there's log there's log collection. Uh, so, so some companies use Elasticsearch for log collection, and the number, the sheer data volume that they're processing is like in orders of magnitude larger than what we do. The problem with our, our, our the big challenge that we run into is that we have to we have high write volume from our retail partners, but we also have high read volume uh, from our customers. So, and anytime you have a uh, a, a Lucene-based store or uh, Elasticsearch in this case, mm -hmm. um, read performance is is negatively impacted by writes. So the more writes you do, the, the, the worse yeah. your read performance is, right? Because it's rebuilding segments and doing all these things under the hood. So what a lot of companies do, like Walmart, for example, what I've heard they do is they have two production clusters, one that's writing and one that's reading. The read never receives writes. And then when they index all their data, they just flip-flop the clusters and then start the process over again. We can't do that. We do not have the ability to have two production clusters up and running because our SLAs are so tight with our retail partners. We need to have all of the data that's indexed needs to be immediately available on the front end. Um, it's very important for um, a lot of our shoppers, uh, our price spread, all of that stuff is very important to keep it uh, keep up to date. And if we if we had a system where we're just flip-flopping the production cluster, it would just take too long. I don't think it would it, it would be sufficient for us. So we're we're in kind of like a unique a unique space where we have to both write a ton and, and read a ton, and read a ton, and we have to also provide personalization, and we have to uh, yeah, we just we just have to handle all of this stuff in real time. Um, yeah. Yeah, that's hard for me to solve. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, see, seeing you like talking about this, like you, like you obviously like uh, eat like not a single uh, pound of salt on this. So, how did you get there? Like, what's like, what's your way to like learn this stuff? Like, how how yeah, how do you discover like? Uh, is it just like oh like I, I'm like I had this issue in production and that's that's why I know it or like do do like yeah. proactively kind of well, well the, things the how, kind how, of do, how do you learn in in general yeah. yeah yeah so so I think I think with learning uh, it's a lot of trial by fire I, I think we're at the end of the Stack Overflow uh, the we're we're at the end of the road with Stack Overflow with what what uh, what answers we can find with the problems that we run into. Um, I think I I learn through doing. Mm -hmm. um, I've never been a person that that likes reading a blog post and just like absorbs the data through that. If I read a blog post, I'd like to to actually implement some type of code that uh, that fixes a problem, of sorts right. And you you learn over time 
what works and what doesn't work. And with with Elasticsearch, there's been a there's been a lot of things that I've learned over the years that that have dramatically uh, improved how we run search. But you know, like some of the things aren't practical at small scales other things you kind of grow into you become mm -hmm. a bigger company uh, they're more practical at scale so I think it's always a it's always a measure of uh, for me at least it, it's it's always a measure of how practical something is to implement and and run in production from a cost perspective versus uh, versus scale and stability and all these mm -hmm. other things right like you can you, you, there, there's a there's a broad spectrum of how you can implement code um, from like just rapid deployment, uh, get it out fast, fail fast, iterate fast versus like glacial, super stable, you know, yeah. at the other end. And yeah. I think with Instacart, what's happening is we're we're kind of moving from the super fast implementation and we're kind of moving the other direction on our on our scale mm -hmm. um, and we're spending a lot more time on robustness and making sure that everything is everything's in a good great state um, and I, I don't know like it, it's kind of funny that you ask that because everybody says well how do you learn how to deal with scale and then my answer is like, oh, just work at a company that has a huge scale, and then you'll yeah. just learn, right? Yeah. <laughs> and uh, unfortunately, that's like the answer that the, uh, a lot of people would say. Like, you, the only way to speak English is speak English. Yeah, right? the yeah. The only way to actually solve the scale is like Be, have the scale. Yeah, 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 yeah. Drink from this fire hose, and you'll yeah. find out how to drink from the fire hose. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> this is true. Um, do you think like? Do, do you think there was like a person like who was like kind of your like mentor or like maybe like mm -hmm. influenced you a lot in terms of like your uh, understanding how to work on like uh, like what what do you find interesting and like yeah yeah so every single team I've worked on um, uh, particularly at, at at Living Social and um, uh, and early days at Instacart you're kind of in this small engineering team, everything's constantly on fire because of scale, and there's a camaraderie that you build during that period that, yeah. that's hard to, to uh, hard to get in other situations, right? Um, and when when you're in that situation, I think you observe you absorb a lot of information just just by being around other people who are, are yeah. passionate and, and and skilled engineers. Um, I, I always, one of the things that I, that I think, uh, uh, hurt my, my engineers, like my, uh, the, the, I'm trying to, I'm trying to fr phrase this correctly, but we had a very tight team in the trenches at Living Social. And one thing that happened over time is we hired a bunch of people who were remote and then a bunch of the people who were in the office started to work remote. And then what I found is that like it was a ghost town. And a lot of our senior engineers were no longer sitting next to some of the more junior engineers. And that had a serious negative impact on the culture of the engineering team mm -hmm. at, at, at Living Social. Um, I, I just remember coming in some days and being like, where the heck is everybody? Like, everybody's working from home. Yeah. And I think you lose something when you're not sitting next to your team. 
if you go remote, you have to make sure that you maintain that camaraderie and yeah. make sure that the information sharing is, is there because osmosis through and, and learning through osmosis with other employees becomes a challenge. Um, at Instacart, we have like a pretty firm rule of everybody has to work in the office. And now we're kind of like, well, do we need to open up other offices to grow and scale the team? Um, I get nervous about that because like I, I saw the, the bad side of it at my last job. Yeah. So I just want to make sure. And that's not the same. Like the, the, the thing that the thing that I always heard was I get more done when I work from home because nobody's bothering me. But as a senior engineer, the flip side is that if you're working from home, you have to make sure that you're training and leveling up the people who are who are newer and more junior than you, right? Still going. And yeah. still going. And, and, that's who, and still going. Yeah. And your job is not just to produce code and crank features and like build things that are awesome. It's also to make all of the employees who work with you awesome. And your value added as an engineer is much better as a resource of training and, and disseminating information than just like, yeah. <laughs> than, than just like cranking out features. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, so some of the, some of the most instrumental people that I've learned from over the years have been people who have taught me things that were not obvious, who had been through the fire before and they were just disseminating information. Um, people who, uh, you know, I, I've worked with people who were very outspoken and and direct and very intense, and that had benefit. And then I've worked with very laid back people who passively taught and were very like gentle and kind, and that was beneficial. And I think I think a conglomeration of everything has been really beneficial. Um, I, I think that uh, the other thing is I think that uh, training and education comes down from the top of the org. Mm -hmm. uh, there has to be a culture of it. So at Instacart, we we try to do a lot of that. We try to we we try to have engineering lunches. We try to do uh, level up the team as much as possible. There's been a ton ton of engineering exchange things where engineers become data scientists and data scientists become engineers. Yes. Um, and what I love to see is data scientists who were econ engineer or econ majors or uh, econometrics majors all of a sudden cranking out features and building applications that they're deploying in production. That that's like amazing awesome. to me. Yeah. yeah, that is awesome. And yeah, yeah, it's oh here's another thing. Um, one thing that I'd never experienced up until Instacart is. I've only worked in organizations up until this year. I've only I had only worked in, uh, in organizations where data scientists were kind of their own team, right? So data science sat over in a corner. They're like typing away and working in in R and assembling reports, and then they take this like long 150 page printout report. They drop it on your desk, and that goes right into the garbage. Yeah. <laughs> like that's what would happen at my last jobs. They would like say, "Here's our findings. This is what we think should happen." Here's a projection of X, Y, and Z, and then the engineers would be like, "Well, what the, what's actionable in this? Like, how can we how can we do this?" Or the the converse of that is someone would run an A/B test, and then the data scientist would like swoop in at the last minute and be like, "This is why your your A/B test is invalid." And you're like, "Where the hell were you like three months ago when we started yeah. this thing?" So here, the the converse of that, like here, what we do is each team has a data scientist 
specific to that domain. And on search in particular, it's, it's a 50-50 split of data scientists and engineers, which is amazing because data scientists kind of function as the, uh, as the product leads. They, they figure out where we can improve. They analyze all of the issues. They also figure out what the low-hanging fruits are. And the engineers can then work in, in, in Congress with those people. Yeah. Um, and I've, I've learned a lot about how to think about problems just by working with data scientists. Because they, they, they tend to think differently than some of the engineers that I've worked with in the past. And that's been like hugely instrumental in uh, forming how I, how I solve problems. That's uh, that's very good insight. <laughs> um, yeah, uh, maybe just like uh, uh, maybe just like slow down a bit and kind of look at like the other side, except like of work. So I know that you like serial hobbyist. So like, oh yeah, well, yeah. What, what, like what's uh, what's your geeks right now? Oh man. Um, so you know, do you know about the the cooking thing? The, uh, what, yeah. Like, so every year I choose one thing to learn how to cook. Okay. And the, the whole reason for it is that if you learn how to cook a lot of things, what I find is that you, what, whatever you gain in breath, you lose in depth, right? Okay. So I choose some seemingly, uh, seemingly specific, like very, very specific topic to, to dive into with cooking. And I'll get into something like coffee. Seems like a pretty easy thing. You take beans, you grind them up, and then you add hot water to it, and then you get coffee, right? Well, there's actually a lot of subtlety in there. And if you, if you go deep into a subject matter, the amount of appreciation that you have for it extends beyond where you think it is. And yeah. what's interesting is that now I, I find myself... Uh, more appreciative of people who spend the extra time brewing a good cup of coffee, or when I uh, I spent I, I spent a year learning how to do espresso and latte art and all these other things, but then it took me a solid two and a half years because I'm terrible at these things to actually learn how to do the art and get get proficient enough to do these things. And now when I get a cup of coffee at a coffee shop and there's someone who has an amazing like high contrast rosetta on the top and perfect foam and microphone, the amount of appreciation and enjoyment I get out of that cup of coffee far exceeds yeah. yeah, far exceeds what what I saw or what I what I felt before. Yeah. And I think that's true with all of these things. So so it started with coffee, like that's an example of one. I went deep into bread, like the the <laughs> I become mildly obsessed with these things. So with bread I was doing like you know, 50 kilos of flour a month of bread, and I would just iterate on bread over and over again, trying different hydrations, different proofing times, uh, different processes for making my own leaven and all these other things, right? Mm -hmm. And now when I have a piece of bread, I appreciate that piece of bread yeah. more because I've been, in, I've been in the trenches. Like, I know yeah. how horrible it is to just, like have to have to lift all this stuff and like drag bags of flour um, <laughs> I, I, and and recently I got into um, recently I got into pizza and my goal last year was to 
to make 250 pizzas in, in a year. And um, that, that, was a, that was a lot of pizza. And I went through this whole process of like tuning the pizza dough, figuring out what I liked and what I don't like. And the interesting thing is that I don't think the pizza that I make now is the best pizza in the world, but I like it. I like the pizza that I make. And to me, that's enough, right? Mm -hmm. And uh, I noticed that there are some pizza places that I go to and say, I'm just like, man, these guys like really thought about this because I realize what they're doing is they're doing a two-day proof. Yeah. They're doing a two-day proof. They're doing a high hydration dough or low hydration dough. They're using a particular type of mozzarella or whatever. And um, yeah, yeah. So I, I just, I, I like the idea of choosing one thing Becoming very yeah, going very deep in the sub subject matter so that you you appreciate the subtlety in there because like the subtlety are things that maybe only someone who's looking for them would see, mm -hmm. um, but it 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 makes uh, I don't know it kind of it, it it makes it more interesting to go to a pizza shop and be like yeah. oh look at this when you when you fold the pizza the tip of the pizza slice doesn't bend down. That means that they stretched the dough correctly and didn't overthin it, right? So sometimes you go to a, a nice Neapolitan restaurant, you bend the pizza slice, and then it droops a little bit. Yeah. Like, oh, well, they don't care about pizza. Like they, these guys are just like whipping out pizzas, not thinking about it, right? Anyway, it's hard to think. Of, it, it's hard to. <laughs> it's hard to talk about this yeah. stuff without sounding like a jerk, right? Yeah. Uh, um, but. I, all I all I would say. <laughs> well, I don't think you sound like a joke, but like it's yeah. like, but it's really you need to really spend time and dig into details and not to yeah. understand the subtlety. Yeah, yeah, subtlety. yeah, exactly. And I I think I, to pull that back into engineering, um, I think the same is true with a lot of engineering. Like one of the best descriptions I heard of some of the best engineers I've ever had is they're T-shaped. So you have a person with a broad a broad set of knowledge but they're deep in one subject and they're like insanely uh, well-versed in a particular subject. And if, they, if they're that well-versed in that one thing, chances are they know a lot, right? So well, I, I, try to, I try to do that in a lot of the hobbies that I do, but I, I try to keep it focused to one thing. So um, what's, your, what's your current hobbies like? Pizza? So, so, so I, I spent last year doing pizza, uh, this year, I, I recently moved into a house, so it's mostly been uh, <laughs> just, just fixing the house and making it not a, a death trap. Um, but uh, uh, I, I, I've been uh, trying to get into Mediterranean food, so like trying to trying to choose something in the, in the Mediterranean sphere, something that I don't know anything about. Um, uh, oh yeah, one one thing I'd like to say about. The, the subtlety thing. Um, so when I choose a topic to go into, one of the things that I like to, to concentrate on is the process of something that requires discrete steps. So I'm really bad at stepwise operations that require me to focus on very mundane things. Mm -hmm. um, that's why, with, you, that's why you're automating everything. Yeah, yeah, that's why I automate everything. Whatever, right? So with coffee, 
with, with coffee, especially espresso and, and doing latte art, there's a very discrete order of operations. And what I find is that concentrating on these mundane little things and making sure that you do them over and over and over again is a way of getting centered, right? So mm -hmm. in the morning, it's kind of like a, it's this weird process of uh, meditation, right? So coffee, this whole coffee process becomes a meditation thing. Or if I'm, if I'm doing bread, bread now is very methodical. It's very, I don't even think about it. It becomes automatic almost. Yeah. Um, that's what I that's what I like to do because it's very different than than my job where I'm kind of like react I'm kind of reacting to outages I, I have to be very focused on one very specific thing right where this is kind of stepwise operations that are very mundane mm -hmm. that don't require much thought but in aggregate it's like it's very difficult to concentrate on these things yeah and I think I think uh, yeah, yeah, I think I think it's a good it's a good way of, of exercising that part of your brain that that requires a, a disconnect from like the logical yeah. uh, problem solving thing where you're just kind of like methodically doing something and going over and over and over again. Yeah, I I totally agree. Like uh, having like some like this hobbies and like so very often insights from them help you in the everyday job and vice versa because they're so different. From like what you're doing, like what really what, what for the job and yeah. for the hobby. So how do you like how do you find your like life or work balance? How like how you make sure that like you kind of doing uh, what you want to do, what makes you happy, and like versus yeah 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 uh, so, working so much because we're all obsessed yeah. with like the yeah yeah I so so this is gonna sound super cliche, but I think if you do what you enjoy doing, you don't have to work. I've heard that a million times. Uh, it's it, as an engineer who loves to code and likes building things. Uh, I'm a tinkerer. It's kind of a dream job, right? Like yeah. you, you can you do what you love, and then that's part of your that's part of your thing, right? Like I I, I think that work-life balance is a matter of finding what you like to do. Um, if if you're if you're working so that after work you can play then I think the work-life balance is much different than if you are doing what you love and you're here implementing implementing things that you're very interested in. Yeah. Building a, building a product, right? Um, yeah, yeah. I mean, I, that, that's what I'd say to that. I, I, think, I think that you... I always try to maintain a healthy balance of work projects and personal personal projects and goals for you know uh, little hobbies and stuff like that but in in terms of like how do I keep balance it's 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 uh, I, I find that it's more about working in a place that you want to work than yeah and then that would make you happy yeah um thank you that was really cool and like I think this like hour flew by like yeah, yeah. no time so how can people find you like online just like GitHub or like Twitter or like whatever so yeah so I am uh, I am not on many social networks I specifically choose not to be on social networks um, uh, if you if you want to look me up on, on 
I, the only one that I post to regularly is Instagram. I know that sounds ridiculous. And my GitHub handle is the same. It's El Guapo1611. If you speak Spanish, that's an ironic name. Um, uh, yeah, and that's it. Thank you, John. Yeah, no problem, man. Cool. Yeah. Talk. <laughs> Bye.